Peter Wilson has been a gentle voice behind some of Australia's biggest theatre spectaculars. I kind of floated back to the airport and then floated on a plane back to Canberra and went, whoa. Now working internationally across Asia and at home, Peter is a director and teacher to a whole generation of puppeteers. Don't be rude, but bring a little playfulness and cheekiness into your world. It's great to have you back here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your one-stop shop for all things puppetry, arts and practitioners. My name is Pete Davidson and today I am basking in the regal majesticism of Australian puppet royalty, but in all honesty I am thrilled to be joined today in person by internationally acclaimed puppet director Peter Wilson. Hi Peter, thanks for being on Talking Sock. Hi Pete, Uh, lovely to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to your listeners and your followers. They're so ready to have you. Peter, first question, why puppets? Why puppets? The career took a left turn, in fact. Uh, Probably when I was about 20, 21. I trained as an accountant, oddly enough. Got a piece of paper. Was working for several years as an accountant. At the same time I was doing that, I was also dancing and doing classes and performing in shows. This is in the early 70s to mid-70s in Perth, West Australia. Mm. So I'd been having some, uh, you know, some interesting times working as an accountant, going off in the evenings of doing dance classes. Uh, and then I learnt tap and jazz and mime and all that stuff kind of interested me. And then in 1975, I moved from Perth with my girlfriend at the time, Jude, to Melbourne. She was from Sydney, but we ended up basing ourselves here. And I went and joined a couple of uh, training dance schools and performance schools. And also I refused to take up a job as an accountant, which is what I had been doing in Perth. So I felt that's that's a life I wanted to leave behind. I felt it was too straight. A life, that is. Uh, Because I'm certainly far from being straight. And um, (laughs) I allowed my playful mind to be able to say to the guy behind the desk at the Commonwealth Unemployment Office, it was called the CES, I said to this guy, um, he said, what do you do? And I said, oh, not a great deal, I mostly dance. I didn't want him to know that I had a degree in accountancy because the wall was full of all these jobs. Mm. And there was a little notice on on the board that said, puppeteer. And I leaned across to the woman behind the counter and said, what's a puppeteer? What does this job entail? And there was a very small description, although I had a sense of what a puppeteer might be because as a young kid, as a six-year-old, my mum used to take me to see uh, at the Playhouse in Perth in Pier Street. Uh, that theatre no longer exists there, but the Tintukis, ah, Peter Scriven's yes. company, was travelling Australia. And I saw two or three of his productions over a number of years. I was aware of what that role was. And I just said to this guy, what's the address? Let me go out there and meet the director of this company. So my first real association with puppetry in Australia, aside from the Tintukis, as as an audience goer, towards the end of 75, was meeting Parry Marshall... His company was known as the Parry Marshall Puppet Theatre. Uh, and I worked with his company, ended up being taken on board, worked with his company for two years. All the members of that company, lots of people don't necessarily know this, but 
the Helen Rickards and Ken Evans and, and, and Andrew Hansen, Maeve Avella, Christine Woodcock and myself, we were all working for Parry. We became the basis of starting Handspan Theatre out of that. Mm. We, wow. we had fun working with his company, but we felt puppet theatre and the art form could go much further. So we then uh, formed a company on the 13th of July, 1977. Um, and so if you want to go back to your question, why puppets? I've always, I guess, you know, I was introduced from a five, six-year-old to puppetry and I'd always been intrigued by the, the animist, the, the, the spirit of that world. It's mm, a great word. It was a, it's a really important aspect of the art form and it's something that I talk about when I teach the art form. It's the, in, the inherent other that sits within it. And that, that always intrigued me and I, lo- I love the, the spirituality of the art form. And so it's here we are in 2020, hopefully right on the end, end of our lockdown period here mm-hmm. in Melbourne. And here we are... Um, 45 years later, and I'm a sprightly 47-year-old. Not really. <laughs> I mean, I'm in my mid-60s now, so... Yeah. Um. And so take us back to the beginning and that, that origin of handspan theatre because it has such a legacy, I guess, now as a theatre company. And what's happening in your world at this time? It's 1975. What was the show that really kicked off handspan? Well, Handspan was formed in 77. I apologise. That's OK. It's a, it actually, you say 75, which is, this, that's that's the in the background mm-hmm. without getting in the way of Parry Marshall. Yeah. We, all us puppeteers who were working for Parry, saw a job um, for a restaurant called Anatole's and it was a production that they wanted in a lunchtime restaurant on a Sunday called Hansel and Gretel. Mm-hmm. And so we applied, got the job, created the puppets and ended up doing a lunchtime, a lunchtime Sunday performance every Sunday for 18 months of Hansel and Gretel show. Wow. Uh, we wrote the script, we made the puppets, we rehearsed it. Um, it was successful to a point, but it was very interesting to observe kind of within the workings of it and, and to get a sense of when you step back and go, I never want to make a work like that again. I mean, Anatole's gave us a bit of money... We actually achieved, you know, we achieved some pretty good results. But uh, that led us on to other small jobs. That takes, so we're talking about July 77. And then into 78, the company started to do small projects. There was a show called the, the Dental Show or the Teeth Show. And there was lots of small little projects that started to really give a grounding forehand span. The one thing that I felt was deeply missing was a, a, a way of training and learning and understanding the art form better, yeah. particularly from a performance point of view. I was working with Handspan, but also I was one of the founding performers of Polyglot Puppet Theatre. Mm. So I worked for Polyglot for 12 months, um, at the same time doing stuff with Handspan. I wanted training, I wanted to learn more and be taught, but there was no-one teaching here much yeah. in this country, mm. except Lyndon Peter Wilson, who was the artistic director at Tasmanian Puppet Theatre that later became Terrapin Puppet Theatre. Mm. Peter used to bring a lot of directors over, Noriko Nishimoto. Oh, yes. A beautiful woman who, uh, bless her, passed on a couple of years ago. Uh, Takeshi, another Japanese puppeteer. Performers and directors from Europe, teachers. They came across and uh, they taught. And, I, and so in 79 I applied for 
uh, position down in Tasmania. 79 January was also one of the... A big year for the festival. A big puppet festival. Yes. It was a fantastic puppet festival. It seems Wonderful. like such a cornerstone for so many, so many people that I've already interviewed. It seems to be it was that festival that really, you know... It was. It, what, it's what kind of kicked it a lot of things. Um, if you jump back to 75, there was a festival in Melbourne, a puppet mm-hmm. festival here in Melbourne. Um, reasonably well organised, but I think there was starting to be a groundswell of movement. Right. Because you had... Hans Band in 77 had just been formed. Mm-hmm. Tasmanian Puppet Theatre was running for a couple of years. Pete formed it in about 71, I think, 70, 71. The Marionette Theatre of Australia was, uh, through the Elizabethan Theatre Trust, was doing really well in Sydney. Yep. Polyglot had just been for- performed in, uh, formed in 78. And there was lots of disparate puppeteers from around the country. So the festival in 79 in Hobart was brilliant. And following the festival, I stayed on and worked for a year, 15 months with Tasmanian Puppet Theatre. Mm. My reason for going there was I wanted to learn more as a puppeteer. Yeah. There was no one to train us. There was a massive gap within the, the training within Australia, which I will talk about in yes. the other questions that you yeah. want to discuss about institutions and uh, tertiary programs. I do want to go there because obviously uh, I found in this research that so many of us are also educators um, and we come from education backgrounds. But before we get there, who came up with the name Handspan? Actually, I think it was Helen Rickard's mother. She's one of the founding members. I think it was her mother because, um, I dared say it, I'm not sure if it was me, but we had a name of Finger Ruppets. I love that. We are, I loved it too. <laughs> uh, but at the time it was, you know, I think that was probably a little bit too playful and rude. I mean, we've got to remember, even though it was a kind of coming out time in the in the late 70s, mm. Finger Uppets gave me great delight and a lot of people adored it. And, in fact, it's a good title for the next company I ever form, if I ever form a company. Or show. Yeah, it could or be show. a show. You could do a show with Finger It's Ruppets. perfect. Yeah, it's, it's a great. great title. But I think it was help because we talked about, you know, in the span of a hand... Everything happens. Everything occurs within that space. And, in fact, here's a really interesting anecdote for mm. you, Pete. Around 78, also, 77, 78, Hand Spring Puppet Company from South Africa was formed. Yep. Exactly the same time. <laughs> so we stayed in contact all those years and I'm still in touch with those boys. Ah, fantastic. That's such a cool... I just... It's really interesting now having talked with people like Richard Hart, Dennis Murphy and now yourself about particularly the festival in 79 but also what was just happening in Australia around that time. It, it, these these cornerstones of what seems to be the thing that got everyone into puppetry. And yeah, it's really painting a really clear picture for me now as to, to what puppetry was then. And so 10 years later you're off to France to what is kind of the epicentre of puppetry. And, you know, you're now north of Paris in Charleville-Mézières. I think this question about your education is important because you yourself then became a, a tertiary educator in Melbourne. So I know that you've, you travelled Asia in the, in the 70s and, and you, you've you been trying to get all this training, but do you kind of think that Charleville-Mézières was your formal training in puppetry? I do remember going to Perth and getting some training from Noriko. Hmm. But my frustration in, in Australia was the lack of proper and appropriate training and teaching for puppeteers or writing for puppet theatre or... Yeah. I mean, in fact, it was really interesting in Handspan. I will talk about 85, but one of the things that we set up in Handspan, we brought, I think it was in the 90s, we brought, late 80s, early 90s, we brought writers in and gave writers opportunities to write for puppet theatre. It was one thing that we did. Mm. Alison Crogan, who writes for The Australian and yes. also has written a number of books, she was one of those writers we brought in to give her an opportunity to write for the art form. 
But 85 was really important. I had, it was very interesting because I'd applied for, from one funding source to get some money and had been knocked back. Um, and then in the end I applied to another funding source. Um, and my parents, we were, you know, we were a working class family. So mum and dad gave me a little bit of money, but I'd applied for this, uh, the very first stage or workshop that that the L'Institut International de la Marionette, the Institute of Puppetry in Charleville-Mézières, was teaching. It was a forerunner for their future courses and programs. And so I was one of the first 12 students ever to do that school in the world. Wow. And there was one other Australian, a gorgeous friend of mine, Michelle Spooner, Michelle Pfeiffer now. Uh, but I, I met um, people from Italy, from Spain, several from France... Uh, Josie was from Canada. There's a friend in New York. Now there's a friend, Stephen Barr, that lives in. Who we've, I've been in contact with a lot of these people, particularly the Americans, through this disastrous period, but delightfully smiling now that Biden and Harris are in. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have, and Stephen lives in um, California, in Los Angeles. Um, he lives in the mountains there. Um, so I, I kept, and there's a, and also there's a, a lovely girlfriend. Uh, Nina. Nina is a Scottish puppeteer and, and she was doing the course as well. Wow. Uh, from Edinburgh. And so all of us have still stayed in. There's probably about uh, eight or eight of us out of the 12 that have stayed in contact with each other. Um, wow. So Shelley was a very dear friend and I've known Shell since late 70s and we did a lot of work together in the mid-80s and it's about that time we both decided let's apply for the course uh, we, under the direction of Philippe Jonti. I mean... And it was just, and he's been, a, he was a, I mean, a, an idol of mine. I just adored him. And we met him just as, just after Handspan Theatre formed. He came and performed in Melbourne. And we set up our Gertrude Street studios and we had supper there one night. And we invited Philippe and Mary, his wife, who did a lot of the choreography, to the studios. And we, lovely food, and we showed them, we talked and discussed things about the art form. And I became really good friends. I, Subsequently, I've developed my friendship with Philippe. What's that, he like? What's he like? Uh, he ex- has an extraordinary mind. He's told many stories about his youth and his attraction to the animist and the other. Um, he's, he had a troubled youth. Um, he's always interested in puppetry and, the vis- and visual art form mm. and visual theatre. His wife, Mary, they met in the Côte d'Azur, the coast of oh, down in the south of France. And she was a dancer, dancing for Ballet Rambert. They met, fell in love, and she eventually moved. She was in a, a Londoner. Yeah. And they, she eventually moved to France, to Paris. They established the company. Their, their work is just legendary. And the opportunity, when I got accepted into the school, was like, wow. And it's very interesting. The course was extraordinary. We stayed in kind of digs. That's an old-fashioned expression. <laughs> like dormitories in this really old, old, old school that was no longer a school. They turned some of the rooms and put mattresses on the floor for us to sleep. And we had a mess. And they, they, they were set trying to work out how this course might run and where how people would be housed. Yes. And we were down along the river. I don't know if you've ever been to Charleville-Messieres. Not yet. Stunningly beautiful. You'll get there. <laughs> Up here, you'll get there. It's a really, it's absolutely remarkably beautiful. It's two towns. Mm-hmm. Um, a, bri- a river runs through the middle of them. And we were down on one river. And, of course, right on that river there was a, a bar that sold all the types of Belgian, French beers that you could choose from, like, 80 yeah, these beautiful beers. It's but so it was French. a really incredible, wonderful course. 
there's lots of things that one learned from the course, but the one thing that I always remember, I think I used to say this for many years, Philippe, it enabled me, he exposed, he allowed me to understand through my mistakes what worked and what didn't work. He gave the opportunity, as I was exploring and developing through that course, things that through errors and, and, and misunderstanding and in a whole range of things, and in areas that I thought I already knew, he reaffirmed those things, which was really encouraging. Great. You know, we hear of so many educators, um, particularly in Europe and France, who educate through a particular method. If I think about Gollier, the, the clown school, uh, you know, the, the fact that he rings a bell when you're not funny, it's quite a, it's quite a harsh sort of way of approaching education and, and teaching people the performance. Do you think that Philippe Gentil was a nurturer or was he more of the, you know, where did he sit in this spectrum of how to teach you and teach you the hard way or the right way? He, I'll, have to, I'll, I'll probably have to answer it in this way, he was a top teacher. What was really difficult is Mary couldn't join us for some reason. I think one of her parents, Mary, Mary is incredible. She's a great teacher too. She does a lot of the choreography. And between that, they're a, they're a true partnership. Mm. They work out the creations together. Mm-hmm. So he missed her and he had to bring in um, a young guy called Christian uh, who was a beautiful puppet maker and he did a lot of the classes and teaching. He... Uh, I mean, he brought, he brought the 12 of us together in so many ways. Uh, he taught me the... I mean, one of the things which I hadn't thought about, he taught me that uh, the importance of mask. So we actually started off doing mask classes. Yes. That the, the, the mask actually is the puppet. It is. It's and an so honor. the first week was all about masks. And, and you kind of go, why are we doing this? And then, of course, the penny drops. <laughs> so, and he taught, he taught a multitude of exercises, different kinds of fixed-point exercises yep. that we had never done in Australia. So mm-hmm. much of those come from what I'd brought back to Australia, the fixed-point and, uh, and balance and, uh, and interplay between space. And, yep. Um, he I'd had those senses, but I just needed Philippe to encourage me that I was on the right track. Yeah. That is the best thing that I learned from Philippe. He showed me some techniques, of course, but he really just he basically said what you're doing and what you're saying and how you're how you're coming to understand form and ideas and process is you're on, you're on the track. Mm. And I just needed to have that reinforced. Yeah. Which sounds a really weird thing from an educate from a student learning, but um, because you often go to learn, I want to learn about this technique and uh, I want to do this or... Um, because, you know, here in Australia we have no-one to teach. Very few people teach. It's sort of having your inklings formalised and, and giving it legitimacy, yeah. absolutely. It's very interesting what uh, the programme that I set up later that we'll discuss here at, in Melbourne at the VCA, um, and programmes that I set up within Skylark in Canberra, were I took elements from what Philippa taught. Mm. A lot of lot of training things from what he had taught and put into my program, but I just and I expanded on that program because you are teaching a twelve month program, uh, the tertiary program at VCA. Yeah, um, you had the time. So let's talk about Skylark. Let's talk about Canberra. One of the big shows here for me is the touring production of The Hobbit, where I know a number of other guests that I've had on the podcast were also involved with that production. But can you tell us about the Skylark years and what it was like to be asked to move away from Handspan and, and, and become an artist dire- director of a, an existing company? Let me backtrack a little. Skylark was formed in the early to mid-'80s 
um, two beautiful women had set the company up and they brought over a, a puppet baker from the US. One of the women, Shelley MacDonald, was uh, having lots of cups of tea with this maker. Um, they formed the company. Uh, Marty Martin and Shelley MacDonald created the company. I think it was about 85. I came onto the board. So the company invited me to come onto the board in about 91, 92. Um, and another friend of mine had gra just graduated from NIDA and I was not on the board at the time, but they appointed uh, David to be the artistic director. Um, and it became evident that it was a, not the, it was a little unfair. I observed that the appointment wasn't, you know, David's lovely and he's a very, very good director, but puppetry was not the world that he had mixed in. Mm. David stayed there for a year, but in that year that he was there, the company invited me up to be the artistic director. Be right. the um, artistic director, but on the board. Right. And they said, would you move to Canberra? And I said, no. <laughs> so after them asking me 400 times, I thought about it and thought, wow. Um, and this is a really, really interesting point. Having formed Handspan, been part of a team that formed Handspan Theatre in 1977, here's an opportunity to leave the family. Yeah. So in... Uh, 1993, when I said, mid-1993, I said, yes, I will come and join the company and take on the role. It was a big decision to leave my Handspan family and go and move another company. Now, I'd been thinking at the time also, I feel like I need to break out. I need to know that I can run a company. I need to know that I have the creative drive in me to make lots of really fabulous work. Um, and take take puppetry in a direction where I felt it needed to go within Australia. That I, Handspan was doing great stuff, but I sensed that I wanted to take it in other directions as well. So, at the end of that year, I'm at the end of '93, I moved to Canberra in '94 and ran that company for. I was up in Canberra for eight years, but I ran the company for six years. Unreal. At the same time, though, you're creating one of the, I don't know, one of the biggest puppetry shows of the 90s for ABC Kids. You're creating Liftoff. And I, I have to ask you about that because I grew up with that show. And, we, you know, we've just spoken about how many episodes were, were produced and it was quite a lot. And there was an enormous amount of puppetry in that show. Tell me about working for TV out of out of Handspan and coming across into that space. Yeah, it was good. It was actually a very interesting time. It was 1992, 91, 92, the ACTF, Australia Children's Television Foundation, and the ABC approached me. To, to see if I'd be interested in working on this series. I immediately said yes because it was I, I dabbled into uh, puppetry for some TV mm. shows and commercials through the 80s. It was quite a big time for commercials, very little puppetry is in commercials these days. Yeah. But it was a lot in the 80s. So the, the, the idea of going sideways and coming across from uh, the, a lot of the live theatre work into some television had always intrigued me. And as another little lovely anecdote, um, a couple of years before, here in Melbourne, I was watching, I think Don Lane was running a program here. Remember Don Lane, the interviewer? And I was yes. sitting at home and he had Jim Henson on his program and Jim was visiting Melbourne. Um, and actually, this is, this is a number of years earlier. Yeah. So it goes actually back to early handspan days. Right. But I, I think it's important because his influence on me is pretty significant as well. So I, I met Jim, but the way I met Jim was I'd watched this, I'd watched him on that program, Don Lane Show. I waited. I then rang Channel Nine and said, "Look, I'm, it's, is Jim Henson there, please? I'm a very good friend of his." 
Um, and they said, no, he's gone back to the hotel. And I said, look, I've just... I've misplaced the hotel that he's staying at. Um, they gave me the hotel name. Um, about half an hour later, I called the hotel, um, was put through to his room, and I had a conversation. And I was... We were performing one of Nigel Triffitt's productions called Secrets. Right. And so I got on to him... Um, and I invited him to come and see the production. Um, and so I met him the next night at the theatre. That was clever. That was a bit cheeky, wasn't yeah, it? very cheeky. But I've never <laughs> known to be anything but cheeky. Yeah. You, you, you only move somewhere, you know, in the theatre world or in life. Don't be rude, but bring a little playfulness and cheekiness into your world. Hmm. Tell me about, then, the experience of bringing... Because, you know, I guess Jim Henson was responsible for bringing television puppetry to where it was in so many ways that puppets were designed for television. And you're bringing in the 90s... I mean, you know, there were there were puppet shows on television a lot um, from the 50s when we had television. But I feel like for our generation, this kind of puppetry was really wacky and out there. The backpacks were puppets. The, the puppets were different styles. The shoes were puppets. There was EC... There was an, a real mixing of styles, and and I guess for me it just it just was an explosion of color and creativity and puppetry that we hadn't seen before. You'd always seen a marionette show or a puppetry show. It, it really merged a lot there. Was that you? Like, tell us more about that. I th- I think the nature of liftoff gave us the opportunity to introduce all kinds of forms. Mm. So EC, for example, came. The inspiration for EC was actually from Cho Cho San was the baby out of Chocho uh, that we had explored and then Hansman created originally Chocho in 1984. Wow. And then in 86, towards the end of 86, uh, Malthouse or Play, Playbox Theatre Company yes. did a new season and so I, I was the, the only original artist that was brought across because the role was a strong puppetry role. So in 87, 88, I did Chocho um, with Playbox, travelled the world with a big success, travelled Australia, massive, massive success. Um, and one day, getting back to liftoff, which is the topic we're on, uh, I'd been asked to um, come up with some ideas and I brought in a puppet that was the faceless baby from Chocho. No. And the executive produced... I said, look, I think I've got an idea here that might work well and I would like to um, just show you. And uh, Patricia, the executive producer just fell in love with the idea instantly and that's where that's where EC came from different scale yeah she just loved the idea of an every child Peter's pointing to a portrait of EC on his wall and I have to ask what does actually EC stand for do we know do you know no I don't I don't know well I'm not I don't think everybody knows but every child Ah, <laughs> I've been wanting to know that for so long. You've been wanting to know it since 1992. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> when you were two years old. All you had to do was pop down and see me. Oh, if I only had known. Oh, my goodness. I, awesome. Look, I know it sounds... It's um, every child because the the character... The character held no creed. There's no colour. It was no... no uh, There's no sex. It wasn't a male or female. Yes. It was, it was, it was a mix of all children, which is what the... Even though in Chocho San the child was a young boy, it was kind of featureless. It still had the eyes and the shape for the face. Yeah. But you, you that's, that's one of the beauties about the art form, that you can, you can sit and place your own imagination and, and, and see your own kid in it or whoever you want to within that face. I also think, 
I mean, I think EC by popular audiences was a bit misconstrued by not having a face. It was sort of a, a, bit, a for them, it was a bit creepy, I think. But I, 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 now that I'm linking it with kind of like the idea of Homer and the everyman, and it's just been taken down to a child level, I don't know, there's something about that just kind of just clicks for me and I'm, I'm kind of freaking out a little bit. Okay. Some, it's interesting, Pete. Some kids say, say, and I've had over the years, say to me they thought EC was creepy mm. and weird. But I've also had um, profound shifts in children's mm. under communication changes and for the better mm. through what EC was able to bring. It was a... We did 52 episodes in the first series... Gosh, that's a lot. And we, I was in charge of the puppetries and there was many, many departments. There was there was Wackadoo Cafe, which had a massive amount. Yes. And I worked probably four or five characters myself, voices and characters, and if I wasn't working the chef's head, I was working the chef's separate second arm. Yeah. So um, a lot of my pals are still really good buddies that worked on that series. So so the there was Beverly, the plant outside the lift. Yes. So I, I say this because an EC could be anywhere. Yeah. Um, and then there was there was Rocky. So the the script and the stories enabled us to be able to go, to bring all many many different types and kinds of puppet style into the show. Yeah. It was amazing gift. I mean, the Wackadoo puppets, um, the Wackadoo Cafe puppets were also just so iconically Australian at that time. Like, there was the tans, there was the, the bleached blonde hair. What were they made of? What, what was it? Fiberglass uh, or? La- la- uh, latex. Latex, okay. Yeah, latex foam. Yeah, right. It's just... And some trigger, some trigger mechanisms in there. Mm-hmm. And some of them were just simply that. And so when you did, can we take it for the ninth time, please? So what I'm describing here is the hand, the thumb and the finger parting and so yeah. your arm's up in the air for like eight Forever. hours at a time and you're going, can we have a break, please? <laughs> because also, like Sesame Street, this was sort of one of the shows that really fused human actors and puppets together. Yeah. It wasn't a solo Correct. puppet show. Yeah. I think we need to do a separate episode on uh, Lift Off Alone because I'm going to keep geeking out here and I need to stop. I need to get back to our questions. So let's jump in. Can I, I don't know, there's something about the Olympics that just because of the scale and the international audience that it would have gained just have that opening ceremony. What do you think, can you describe, like what was the feeling to get a call about the Olympics? Do you know what I mean? Like that would just, Incredible. for me. I mean, it's like, we won't swear on this uh, podcast, but uh, <laughs> it kind of my head spun. And I, I knew David Atkins well. In fact, I forgot to say that in about 98, David had invited me to Sydney to direct Audrey for Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, yes, yes. A production that he was doing at the Enmore Theatre. And so Christine Anu was in that production. Yes. Um, amongst another others. You might have seen it. I think I did. And it was, you might have been about... I was eight. Eight, yeah. <laughs> so I directed Audrey in that. Yep. Um, and all, and all, all versions of Audrey through it. Yeah. Um, and so that, that cemented a really good relationship with David. I'd known David much longer, but it was fantastic. And so coming out of that, David had said to Rick Burt when they were discussing nature, and I'm pointing, Pete, to a, a brilliant image on the wall of uh, the nature section from Sydney 2000, a gorgeous big photo. Uh, and and it was, there was animals and there was flowers. Yes. And it was all about you know, flora and fauna. And so that was a, I mean, it was an extraordinary call and it. I got to Sydney and I went into a meeting and both of them were there and I remember thinking, they both chatted to me and I said, yes, yes, this is, is incredible. I'm, I'm really honoured that 
you would like me to be involved, we'd like to offer you a section on the games. Crazy. There and then. And I remember I walked out of there and I, I, I kind of floated, um, floated back to the airport and then floated on a plane back to Canberra and went, whoa, this is extraordinary. And that, that see, what was really amazing is no, no director in Australia at that point had done anything as big, even Nigel no. Jamison hadn't, Merrill hadn't, no. uh, Richard Merritt had not, um, Stephen Page had not, well, all of us had done our own stage theatre works, stage works, but not something to the, to the scale of, you know, your cast is a 1,000 people, Peter, so... No worries. Um, and you've got a 12-minute section, so... And this is the concept, and now choose a designer and choose a composer. Now, did Skyworks make the puppets, or how, who actually ended up doing all that? Like, for, the, for the Olympics? Yeah. Uh, it was all done through Sydney at uh, Carriage Works. At Carriage Works, in okay. Redfern. Wow. And who was your designer? I should know this. Eamon Darcy. Ah. The wonderful and beautiful Eamon Darcy. A very, very dear friend. So looking at the Sydney 2000, you've been directing now for a number of years and we're looking at now a scale. How do you direct 1,000 people? How do you put an arena spectacular together? In terms of the Olympic stuff, it's a big work. How do you go about it? Well, you... You, you start to have conversations with designers and you start to look at the space and you start to think. You, 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 you do your research on... So it's flora fauna, so you look at what are, so what, what are the flowers. So the dominating image actually was wanted to be flowers, all kinds of nature. So you look at the flowers and then you have many conversations with the designer and you talk about how that can be interpreted into something that has the capacity to be beautifully visual... In a, on a scale in an arena, mm. but when it comes together, using the Waratahs as an example, mm-hmm. when they come, you know, 12 Giving pieces come together, it creates this incredible... And you saw it, the audience just went off. Yeah, they got lost it. it. But they wouldn't have picked it necessarily to start with. No. So you, you have to look at... You know, the art form is very much about transformation. Mm, Public theatre is about transforming. It's about shifting a, a, a possibility into um, a probability and a reality. It's a, a, it's a great question because I asked that straight off, not to them. I didn't <laughs> want to appear as a... You know, there's a thing that I've always... that I learned long time ago and that was I never... always say... That sounds incredible, I'm, you know. Uh, never say... Never say never. Never say that you can't do it. Always say... Always say... If, if the idea is terrific and has... has um, Legs. Uh, like a, it's a... It's an honourable and, and a pure kind of offer. You just you you will always be, and if it's going to advance your creative process, mm. of course you'll say yes, mm. and then you work out how to do it. Mm. So you don't mm-hmm. go, look, I've never done this. I'm not quite sure. If you say that, hey, you've lost the job there. That's and it. Yeah. So you just listen to the voice in your head, and you you I'm, I mean invariably doing that, and, and I don't think I'm terribly. I mean I'm a bit mad because most puppeteers are. But I often, I always ask the question, can I do that? And the voice, I've trained my mind to say, yes, you can, but never say no. You are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Peter Wilson. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Peter and myself in just a minute. Want to start a conversation at your next gig or festival? Then grab your wallets because we've got merch. 
head to our Redbubble store to get your hands on some signature One Orange Sock designs. We believe that podcasts should be advert-free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Welcome back to Talking Sock. You are talking with me, Pete Davidson and Peter Wilson. And we've been talking about this in the Olympics and uh, the early 2000s in your career in puppetry, Peter. But I'd actually like to talk to you now. You've written a couple of books on puppetry. And in the early 2000s, things really seem to have shifted for you in now sharing your knowledge about puppetry, I think, after the Olympics. So I want to discuss those two books. You've just handed me one. Um, And where can we get them and how do they come about? The book that I gave you is the, is the main book. Its uh, title is The Space Between. Mm. And it was written at the end of the... Olymp- I began writing the book at the end of the Olympics. So in, in about March 2000, I was a bit lost. The Olympics had finished. A lot of work had fallen over, surprisingly. And most artists on the Games thought they would have gone into work. But uh, there wasn't a lot happening. I was living in Canberra. And I, I sat and thought about what direction in my life I would want to go. And so I, I kind of created a vision and thought, what do I want to do? And there was four things. One was to set up a new company. Two was to write a book. The third was to do an international puppetry summit. And the fourth was to uh, set, establish a, a puppetry a tertiary school puppetry school and that came over out of a period of about three or four months just meditating and dreaming and going what is the next thing in the next chapter so I began to write things about the idea of what I wanted the book to be and I was what and you have to ask what why write a book what what's the you know what is what's what's the burning desire behind a book mm. I went back to Maver and I went to Helen and said there's been so much happened since you wrote that book in 1988. Mm-hmm. And here we are in 2001 too. It's 18 years gone, 16 years. Do you want to write another book? There has to be, you know, and I will help you in the background. But, and both of them said writing one was enough. And the voice kept on coming, do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And I pushed the idea away for three months and, it, and more little clues kept landing, do it yourself. I went to Catherine Brisbane and she said, lovely idea, we'll support you. Yes. So like that. That, that, that cuts the dribble. It's that, so we're in there with the book. <laughs> I come down to Melbourne and I'm at Playbox and I'm meeting with colleagues. Um, uh, and, in fact, I was down in Melbourne to meet... Um, I put a proposal to the Arts Centre about a running a... a doing an, setting up a fellowship. The idea was not specific a fellowship, but I said I want some support from the Arts Centre to help establish a new puppetry school at the VCA. That's how all this happened. And so it, I hope the listeners are following what's happening. So <laughs> uh, I'm in Melbourne and I bump into a lovely friend, uh, Geoffrey Milne. And, and, and I've adored Jeff for years and Jeff had reviewed a lot of my work and Handspan's work through the 80s and 90s and, and given great reviews. He loved the art form. He worked very much in the fringe world. Yeah. Um, and I said to Jeff, um, would you support me? Uh, and I said it with kind of great trepidation. I don't know why because I, Jeff's always been wonderful. And I said, look, I feel a bit odd, Jeff, but 
I'm, I think there might be a possibility of writing a book on puppetry arts. I'm talking to Currency Press and Catherine Brisbane at the moment. And before I'd really finished the sentence, he said, I want to help you. Yeah. Count me and I'll edit it for you. And I went, wow. So all of a sudden the pieces started to fall to, into place. So the conversation then developed. I went back to Sydney and said, Catherine, Geoffrey Milne's come on board. She went, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then the deal got done and signed. And uh, I wrote the book over for the rest of 2001. Is that right? Yeah, 2001, two, uh, and through three, the book was mostly completed by the end of 2003. Mm. It took it quite a bit of time because there was interviews all over Australia. And, uh, and so just jump back a fraction in the process of setting up with the Arts Centre the idea of doing a course, um, setting up um, maybe a puppetry summit um, uh, and one of those visits down to Melbourne supporting writing the book. In one of those visits to Melbourne, um, I had set up a meeting with the chief executive at the Arts Centre and another pal in there who was had a senior administrative position. And you love this. It's one of those moments in your life where you go, can you just repeat that again? Yes. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, anyway, I've just got... That's, that's you know, I want to do, of course, maybe, because I just need the VCA to support me and I, I just... I've done, Currency Press are really interested in this book and I'm trying to set up a new company and blah, 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 uh, and I'd love to be able to do a, a puppetry summit, puppetry festival. And and so I leave it at that and said, thank you, gentlemen, thank you so much for the chance just to talk to you. And they said, have you, have you finished? Have you finished? Is there anything else you want to say? And I went, well, uh, yeah, but thank you. And I go pick up my books to leave and they said, what do you... Come back. And I went, what? I've... I've finished. That's all I have to say, really. And thank you for the opportunity. And they said, um, uh, Tim, do you want to say something? And I s- sat there and they said, there and then we would like to offer you a fellowship. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's a silence because that stuff s- s- creates an emotional moment because the, the whole sense that someone valued what you had to offer in the puppet world... Um, which has always been a massive struggle in Australia. Yeah, and um, I've always I've always fought very hard f- for the industry and for the right representation of puppeteers and puppet writers and all those associated with the art form. And there am I presenting a, a series of ideas and having no idea what they had already been discussing for weeks. And they offered me a twelve month fellowship, which had, they'd never done before, yeah, at a significant fee. And they extended it to 18 months. So I was completely blown out and it led... So the rest of the year, you know, I was spun out and I kind of... Yeah, we're serious about this and, you know, so I moved back to Melbourne. You know, so what happens? I came to Melbourne six months later, drove back down the highway with my cat and then we, <laughs> then we began the, the idea of establishing... But in the meantime, I'd set up VCA agreed to do a course mm. and they agreed to spaces and they, I, I managed to raise funds through a, a, a benefactor that was connected to MTC and VCA and uh, a wealthy, wonderful woman who gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to the course mm. to establish it. And I had the best time. I was buying books from all over the world and I was and getting a lot of puppets made for a library of puppets for, for students. <gasps> Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? It was, it was magical. Mm. And then and the course started. So that was through 
03 and I was still writing the book through 03. So um, I moved back down here in early 02 mm-hmm. and so the fellowship began January 2002 and ran till the middle of 2003. The Arts Centre were unbelievably wonderful and they knew that it would take that time to complete the book, to set up a puppetry festival, to set up the, set up the school, uh, the puppet school, um, and that amount of time to kind of try and re-establish a new puppet company in Melbourne. Mm. Because at that time, Hans Band had closed in 2002. Um, that's another conversation that we won't go into here. <laughs> um, but the, the um, fellowship was truly, truly remarkable. In, in October 2002, as part of the Melbourne Festival, we ran a whole international puppetry summit. Unbelievable. We had over 220 guests and I had people, lots and lots of people from all around the world. Roger Law from Spitting Image came and wow. presented at it. Uh, Richard Bradshaw came down and Norman Hetherington from uh, Mr Squiggle was there and uh, we, we did lots of really amazing things and Ronnie Burkett was performing so Ronnie came and spoke at the summit, Nigel Triffitt spoke. There was a, a summit that was run over three or four days, three days and there was workshops and classes and international teachers and it was pretty remarkable and puppeteers from all around, you know, I think, you know, two, 200, 250, that was a lot. Mm. Yeah. That's a lot of people. A lot of people to come and it was a, a really wonderful event that then um, galvanised things. You see, I, I think it's... What I'd like to add here is in 2001 when I was sitting in Canberra, now you may think you're not in the scene in Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane or Perth or Hobart, what, but I'm tapped into the industry and the community. Mm. So what I saw was a, a failure for the industry to... T- take hold of itself and, and start to grow. I th- I'd felt that Skylark had gone, um, pu- some public companies in Sydney, the Elizabethan Theatre Trust and Marionette Theatre had yep. gone, yep. Um, a lot of individual artists, puppet artists had gone, yeah. Handspan Theatre had collapsed. Um, there was a, a real weakening of the art form and sure. that really pissed me off. Um, and so I was motivated, I was angry, mm. angry that we were not... I was angry that we didn't document our art form properly, which is why I decided to write the book. Uh, I mean, angry angry in a, in a positive, motivating way. Yeah. It's like, oh, damn this, you have to... Somebody has to do this. Do it yourself. So with a lot of support, the book came out. The book came out in uh, August 2004. The summit happened in October 2002. Um, the course... Began was being developed all the way through with plenty of money through 2003 to open in 2004. And the company was not formed, but the company... I like to be able to look at it in another way, the fourth part of the, the quadrilla. The company became, um, through all the work that I did with other companies, a de facto way of creating a company. Yeah. Okay. If, that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the work I do in Asia... Uh, the work I've done here, that became a kind of indirect type of company and without necessarily holding on to the responsibility of uh, the full ownership and the and and the, the lack of sleep that one has for weeks on end running a company. Um, mm. So it was, you know, it was the fellowship was just unbelievable and lots of it, it actually reignited and set up a whole new energy. So the course started, the book was launched, the... 
some, some had happened, there was this real buzz and, and it set a whole chain of artists coming out of the school over six years. There was something like 45 artists graduated into the industry that I'd say 35 of them are still working and creating yes. puppetry. Mm. Um, it is a really... It was a fantastic, fantastic thing. It was just... There's many, many people behind me that were supporting me. I could no way have done it. Um, and there's a really dear friend of mine, Gilly McGuinness, that came in and I just said, darling, she's a school teacher. Um, she taught university and originally primary school, but um, she's just finished her teaching career. But she came in and helped support with the course. And for me, the course was, you know, that's probably going to be a question you're going to ask. Why did you set the course up? <laughs> is that on your list? That is on my list. So let's just, I'm just letting you go. So yeah, this is the course. This is really the question I have been wanting to talk about. And it's probably because myself, I am an educator and so many Australian puppeteers are educators first and then move into puppetry second or vice versa. And so we've always been, as you say, I think you've had the same thirst for seeking out puppetry and education opportunities here. And so you directed that course from 2004 to 2009 and at the Victorian College of the Arts, which is... I guess what we would call it now is like the, one of the big three. You know, you've got WAPA, you've got NIDA, you've got VTA. What was your ethos, I guess, behind the course and how did it translate into educating and structuring a course? So the course came along purely out of the fact that I was very, very pissed off that there was a deep lack of respect in Australia for where this art form was growing, going to and growing. So if you, you look at that period, Pete, around 2000 and... Actually, in 1998, and I was in New York, I had a production at the New Victory Theatre. Right across the road was the New Amsterdam and there was the Lion King. <laughs> 98. Mm. Lion King opened in 98. Extraordinary. Right. Huge, massive show. Then Avenue Q, and you shared with me that you performed in Avenue Q mm-hmm. and took on a character or two in that later than when Lion King came out. But then there was Walking with Dinosaurs that happened here and How to Train Your Dragon. And then in 20. 20- 13 opened King Kong. The increase of use of puppetry within mainstream theatre. So when I started off 45 years ago, it was preschool, kindergarten. Why are you doing that shit? You know, and I, I already had a, I had a very strong vision way back then where I had a sense that the art form could mm. go. I knew that a lot of artists... A lot of people were interested in the art form. That that became evident uh, just through conversations and, you know, lovely friend of mine, Scotty Wright, who runs Earth in Sydney, you would know Scott. You know, they were scrambling for puppeteers and, and Scotty, he, bless him, he grew up in Ballarat here in Victoria and came and watched me and watched Handspan and had used, always said, I've always used you as a model. <laughs> he said, I've loved what you've done and how Handspan did. And, and so what he did with Earth was truly fantastic. Mm. I was always thrilled and I would yeah. sit in the background just supporting him and mentoring him in, along his journey. And I think there's, there's, always, there's always people that are interested. But, but after I'd seen Lion King and uh, Avenue Q, you think about it that at the highest level there's dancers or actors working in and around puppets. And so I figured it was really important. Artists understood, 
You know, if you're an actor, you've got to understand how to respond and work with a puppet. If you're a dancer, you can become... Philippe Chanty uses dancers, not puppeteers, and so he trains them and they have, they have a very different way of creating and moving. So I figured that here, here you have all these other art forms that are course-driven, so they do all their courses one, two, three year, but puppetry, which is now bourgeoning in the, in the greater art forms on Broadway and West End, there's no training for it. You can only train within a company. That's the only way, and that's a puppet company. There's nothing that's established specifically for it. That was, at the, that was the, the fire in my belly that went, damn it, I'm going to make this work. And that was the, the key reason why the course got up. And the argument that I put forward, people could see it. Mm. And they realised. And, and at the, so at the time the course came around, all of these shows were all coming out. And, and people were going, of course, this makes sense. Why, why didn't we have this? Why haven't we had this for a long time? And then some dropkick decides after, you know, six years to move the course along. There still is a gap there. There's there still is. a hole there within the industry um, that nobody out there is training and nobody's giving people the clues. For me, it's a no-brainer, but the, the art form will always struggle until until a champion like Andrea Hull or Richard Roberts or somebody else turns up and says, this has got to change, this is serious. Philip Mitchell in Perth, who's running Spare Parts, has been doing stuff at Whopper. Mm. It ain't the same as, as guiding a course specifically through a full-time program. I mean, we, we taught lots of things. Clearly you're interested, Pete, about history. I am. Richard Bradshaw is the, the, the legend of history in this country on the art form. I love history and it was a subject I taught at VCA in the puppet program in the postgraduate diploma. It was, there was two courses we had, postgraduate diploma and um, a master's. Mm -hmm. uh, and I taught the history subject and Gilly taught the writing and Richard did design and Al did making and uh, we Phil did lighting. We had... You know, I surrounded the course with these brilliant artists that all understood everything about the art form pretty well that they knew uh, they could teach. And we influenced over 220 production students through the six years that we ran the course. So there's a, there's a ripple and a, and, a, and a legacy to the industry of out of VCA, students that went through stage managers, assistant stage managers, production managers, writers, designers, whatever... They've all gone out into the world and are working somehow within the industry. I mean, I know quite a lot of them globally now. Those kids that, we, that were students yeah. in the production program, not the puppeteers, they've gone out and so they have a sensitivity and understanding about the art form. It's just watching you speak about this, it, it's very clear to me how passionate you are about it and I guess I, I share that passion and I share that same I guess, fire in the belly and that anger that it doesn't now still exist in Australia. What There is a counter-argument here that I dare ask and, the, and that is that you yourself and so many in the industry have gotten by by being self-taught. If you were to convince a, a puppetry artist who's been working in the industry for so long to go and get in that education, what would be your argument to them to, to do so? Those that have been working for some time? Yeah. I remember in 99, Spare Parts invited me over to run a, a month workshop with them. And the puppeteers that I was offered had all been puppeteering for 5, 10, 12 years. They found the course fantastic. Mm. And I felt slightly, oh, gosh, I've only been doing puppetry for seven or eight more years than these kids. But we went right back to basics. Mm -hmm. 
and I think the basics are really critical. Um, and there's a lot of things about the basics which you would be taught when you're an opera singer, which you're taught when you're a, a, a dancer, uh, when you're designing, you're taught the basics about how to structure, a, you know, the, the form and the shape, to what you want, to, how you want to tell that story. I would, I would say, always go back. But they need to find the right person to do a, a refresher. So we called it like a refresher course. And mm. I was working with very good puppeteers, but they all came out and said that was brilliant. I just reminded people about... And I watched and I went... And each of them had... Mistak- from my, it's my own humble perspective, I felt they, they had all been self-taught. Uh, Joanne had learned a bit. Uh, she had learned a bit, yes. But all of them had little things that I could fix up and clean up. Mm. And that really improved their, their skills. And so it is not necessarily about whether or not someone has been trained or hasn't been trained, but that there is and exists the basics and that they can be found and they can be, you know, looked at and researched and understood. I think that's really, really important. And I just need to say now and I need to say on the record that, you know, it is because of people like you who champion for education in puppetry that we may one day have something more consistent and more constant that can then survive and I I think then therefore really serve the art form. And But it, it starts with people like you doing that first and so I really appreciate that. And so now I want to kind of open the discussion up more broadly to Australia and Australia's health and puppetry because we've just kind of touched on that now. And for that matter, because you have this knowledge, uh, the Asia-Pacific region, you know, as well. So what do we need for the puppet, the, in- the industry? Or if nothing, what have we got that no one else has? In Australia? Mm. You know, one of the... A friend asked me the other day, why didn't you end up working overseas? Why didn't you stay over there and spend more time over there? And I, my response was I found actually working here in Australia, ironic, just having just said there was no training, there was a, there's a greater sense of freedom about being able to explore ideas. Mm. So when if I go to Japan or China, um, even in some of the European countries, you know, a lot of training programs and art form, the puppetry art forms are regimented. Yeah. Um, and the thing is... This is one of the great things is there's, we have no tradition. That, and having no tradition in the art form, even though historically you would, in conversations you would have had with Richard, you know that the art form goes back to the early 1800s. Yep. And so I think tradition is a wonderful and brilliant thing. As you know, I work in Bali a lot and, and Wayankula, the shadow puppetry form there, is an extraordinary tradition that goes back a 1,000 years plus. So not having a tradition gives you great freedom and that freedom is something that I probably would not have had if I'd gone to work elsewhere. I would have gone to work in a company on projects and all of that's terrific and a lot of my pals have gone over and worked and studied and trained and all of that's terrific. Uh, but as, a, as someone, you know, I went to study with Jonti because I needed to learn and understand more and I've worked with Petra Matasek who's a, a Czech designer and I wanted to learn mm. more from him and Bunraku in Japan. But when it comes to creating work, um, I, I find that not having a tradition enables us to be... We're very like magpies. We can take from everywhere and incorporate that into the creation of ideas. You see it, you see it with all puppetry artists here in Australia, that there is a freedom to explore anything. Anything is possible. Yeah. Inanimate the animate. I love that you said that. Um, just quickly, what are you up to now? What's happening at, as we emerge out of COVID? I know that you've got projects overseas and you're working on projects here. Tell us what Peter Wilson is up to now that we're out of this lockdown. 
I'm helping Blank Canvas with the waterhole. It's a project that we did uh, around Easter last year at the zoo. And we're just gathering a group of puppeteers to put the waterhole back on. So there is a, a socially distant show presented down at, uh, uh, at Williamstown at SeaWorks. So that's one thing. That's just a little bit. I'm currently... The, the main thing that I'm working on at the moment is a project with a company in Mumbai in India. It's a co-Indian Balinese project. It's a story, kind of a new story, that's based on a whole lot of Kashmiri stories from mm. the Kashmir region. Yeah. And they're stories, all true stories, but been, have been written into children's books. And so the writer of the script for this show that I'm working on has taken five of those stories and wove them into create one story. Mm. And I've been rewriting and reshifting and adjusting the script to make turn it into something that I think can work. Right. It's a co-Balinese Indian project. Uh, it's the perfect project. It's extraordinary. It's due to happen in the middle of 2021. I pray that vaccines and flights may open. Um, it could be delayed, but... Uh, so that's, that's taking up a fair bit of time. I'm currently working with composer and designer and a lyricist and there's some songs in there. Uh, we're starting to cast at the end of next month. Um, I've already cast the Balinese. I'm working with my Imadi uh, Sidia, the, the puppeteer, dancer, musician in Bali, developing these ideas. Um, there's a lot of shadow work in it. There's combined Balinese, Indian dance. Uh, there is... Uh, lots of ways in which Indian tells stories. There's a kind of I'm trying to bring a whole new storytelling way in there for for this piece. That's due to open June 2021. One of the projects that got put on hold was a work I'm doing in Bali, which is a new large scale aquarium show. So it's a big aquarium and a main stage. So it's a story that we've written about a young kid. Uh, it's a it's based loosely on some stories that exist within Indonesia, but we're trying to make it more Balinese. And it's a journey about a young boy and he grows up in a village and a rite of, rite of passage happens and um, a turtle appears and the turtle dives into the ocean, steals his pendant and he, he jumps into his boat and tr starts to travel and the boat sinks and he travels, falls all the way down to the bottom of the ocean and arrives in this incredible magical world. Amazing. And this world opens up and he meets characters. And um, and one of the things that we wanted to bring into it was a whole sense of the environment. And so one of the characters, it's the key, one of the key characters in it is pollution and pollution is represented by a monster. Mm. It's a big kind of polluted monster character. And it's about this kid's struggle and survival to save that world. Yeah. And he eventually does. And he kills the monster. And... There's a, other elements in there in the world and in killing the monster, he, the world of pollution and rubbish clears and enters into this extraordinary, wonderful, magical world, all underwater and on stage. So there's two worlds as an audience. If you're sitting in the auditorium, you will see a stage that is 15 metres wide by 10 metres deep and then you'll see a tank that is 8 metres high by 15 metres deep, by 12 metres wide. Unreal. Full of sharks and all kinds of fish and mermaids. And, yes. And characters swimming in the ocean and the story's being told down there as well between the wet world and the dry world. So that, that's that. going to happen later next year when, once the world opens up again. 
Well, finally, Pete, before we go, I need to ask you who your hero is in puppetry. Is there anyone that you would thank looking back on the, the career that you've had so far? Yeah, I would. I, I actually thank um, the man who introduced me to puppetry, Perry Marshall. It seems for some might think it's an unusual compliment to make, but he introduced me to the art form and to the world of puppets through my first arrival when I came here to Melbourne in that mm. first job. Uh, it wasn't what I wanted to do, but he introduced me to a whole group of artists that became Handspan Theatre. So I, owe, I, owe, I have a great respect for what he was endeavouring to do. I would say Philippe Chanty is a, he's a very, very dear close friend. I mean, I love Philippe and Mary, his wife. I adore them. And he's taught me a massive amount. He's, I was due to be in staying with him in, in Brittany this year when it all fell over. Mm. I was going to stay with him for a week. And Jim Henson, I think Jim Henson's incredible. And having met him was a really... And I'd, I'd followed his career and I, I just loved his bravado and the way he just got on and did things and all, his, all the movies that he made were... And the way in which he really developed the art form for television yeah. uh, and movie and film. So I think they're the, they're the three. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of influences along the way. There's a dear friend in London who set up the... Puppet school in London. She's Penny's now just turned ninety, and Ronnie Burkett is um, a pretty remarkable artist that I'm very endeared to. But I, I think the, I think in life, there's always an aspect that you take from everyone that you work with, and you know I owe many many thank yous to the gifts that have come to me from from so many people. It's a uh, there's not specifically one, there's many that have contributed. Yes, I think that's... And may the art form live. And, and may, may the art form live. And go from strength to strength. It sure shall. Peter, we are out of time. Thank you so much for talking sock with us today. You can find Peter at his website, pwilson.com.au. Thanks for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we'll talk sock again soon. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> and we're out. We're out. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at One Orange Sock Productions and check out our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangesock.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Vanier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon with another great episode of Talking Sock. Talking Sock.